If you have a Bible with you, open it up with me to the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thess chapter 1. As we get started, uh, start with a question here. Have you ever set out to do something, gotten into it, and then for whatever reason, one reason or another, had circumstances come about which completely changed your course, which resulted in a complete change of direction? I don't know about you, but I have many times. <clears throat> and uh, I want to look at that for a bit uh, this morning as we get started. And then towards the end of the message as well, we're going to kind of come back and tag that. Because there are some things going on in the big picture here in Second Thessalonians that are worth talking about, worth taking a look at. So, so far, I mean, in, in our two studies here in Second Thess, uh, we've made our way all the way through verse 10. I am not setting speed records, uh, so today we're going to look at two verses. <clears throat> Definitely not a speed record, but there's just so much here to unpack. So we're going to take a look at verses 11 and 12 as we wrap up chapter 1 together this morning. So as we look at this, we see that verse 11 begins with the word, therefore. Now, when I'm reading my Bible and I see the word, therefore, the question comes to me, what's it there for? And that's a good practice to have because I look at the word therefore as a hinge. It's connecting what has been said, what has gone on before with what is about to take place or what is about to be said going forward. So with that in mind, we're going to take a look uh, and take a broader look at the context of the things leading up to what we're studying here in Second Thessalonians. And so I want to take a few minutes. I want to go back to the beginning, actually, before the time that we've discussed already when we look at this, starting with how it was that Paul ended up in Thessalonica. It was not a planned trip. It was not his intention to go there. You've got to understand that. <laughs> he had other things in mind. So we'll see that uh, what necessitated the writing of this first and then the second letter to the church at Thessalonica as we go along. Now, I have a series of slides here. Beginning in this first slide, we're going to go all the way back to Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, we see it in Acts 13 and 14, and, and, and many of the things that we see in the New Testament are tucked into. We can read about them and about the circumstances surrounding them in the book of Acts. And that's what we're going to do as we trace this out this morning. So here on his first missionary journey, uh, if you notice over on the right in the middle, there's a, a large letters, Antioch. That's Antioch in Syria. That was Paul's home church when he made his journeys. That was where he journeyed from. Now, there was a guy by the name of Barnabas. He, he had been a resident, grew up on, on the island of Cyprus. You can see sort of down and to the left of Antioch, the island out in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, a guy by the name of Barnabas who had relocated after he came to Christ uh, to Antioch. And he had actually gone up into Paul's hometown of Tarsus and gotten Paul after Paul had come to the Lord years before and was being prepared for the ministry that God had for him came back to Antioch, and the two of these men got together there. Now, at a certain point, they had it on their hearts, these two men collectively. It's interesting because in the narrative, it talks about Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, and then they get onto the island of Cyprus, and it changes. It turns into Paul and Barnabas. 
because Barnabas was sort of leading at this point and they decided to take off to go in to begin to evangelize, to bring the gospel to these Gentile regions, uh, to get out of the, the region of Israel because this northern area in Syria that was uh, just south or just north of, of Israel to get away from that area and start going out into the empire and to bring the gospel to the people there. So they take off. The green line is their outbound trip. The red line is their inbound trip uh, on his first missionary journey. So they take off. They get on a boat and they go to the island of Cyprus. They land in Salamis there and they work their way across the island to Paphos. Wonderful story there. I wish we had time to go into all of the stories that the Bible tells us about the accounts of what happened to these people. Totally invite you to go and to read these chapters yourself. They're rich with biblical New Testament history. So anyway, they go to Paphos and the governor of the island, uh, he ends up getting saved and uh, that uh, put this magician guy that was trying to kind of taunt him. He got real sideways about it. And again, can't go into it, don't have time. But anyway, after that, Paul and Barnabas, they decide that they're going to head to the mainland. Now, when they had left Antioch, Barnabas said, I know, Here's a good idea. Let's take my nephew, John Mark. So John Mark is with them as they go across the island of Cyprus. And he's with them when they go across the Mediterranean there to the, the city of Perga. As you see Perga there on the coast. Uh, again, on their inbound trip as they're going out now to evangelize in the mainland here. At that point... John Mark bailed on Paul and Barnabas. He said, I'm not going any further. We don't know the circumstances around it. I can only suppose, you know, we look at these maps, they're a straight line, like from Perga up to Antioch, Pisidia. That was another city called Antioch, but it was in the region of Pisidia. Uh, It's a straight line on the map. But folks, the Taurus Mountains are between them and Antioch and Pisidia. These are 10,000 foot high mountains that these guys were going to have to traverse. I don't know if John Mark got off the boat and he looked at the snow-capped peaks and went, I'm not down for this at all. We don't know what caused him to turn around and go back, but we do know that he did. We don't know in the narrative there at this point in the book of Acts that Paul was pretty sideways with him about it, but we find out later that he indeed was. So at this point, Paul and Barnabas press on. They go up to Antioch and Pisidia. becomes kind of a base of operations for them there. Uh, Again, they're wanting to evangelize this region. And so they take off from there. They head back to the east and go to Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. At that point, Paul told Barnabas, look, let's go back and revisit the churches that we've already planted and see how they're doing. So let's go back it, it, and Paul was never just an evangelist. This wasn't about him getting carving notches in his Bible. He wanted to make sure that these people understood the gospel. And not only did they understand it, but he wanted to build into them. He wanted to pour into them so that they were discipled well in the things of Christ so that they would be able to grow and to, to grow with the growth from God. Now, if you know your New Testament, you know that in this region of Galatia that that when Paul wrote the letter to the churches in Galatia, he was hopping mad. I mean, that is the angriest letter in all of the New Testament. He is just upset because false teachers had come in after he had been there in these churches and said, look, 
you need to live like a Jew. You need to get circumcised or because if you don't, then you don't really, you're not really saved because they were trying to present Christianity as an extension of Judaism. And it is not. It is distinct. Yeah, Jesus was Jewish. Paul was Jewish. Barnabas is Jewish. However, Christianity is distinct and there is where there's a whole new covenant that came into play when Jesus went to the cross, fulfilled the old covenant, the law of Moses, and now the covenant of grace. You don't need to be circumcised. So he writes that to these churches because problems were already starting to come up. I don't know if word came to him, but when they double back, they start going back to these churches and they make their way back the same way that they had come. They get all the way back down to Perga. They decide to go over to the west a little bit to Italia and they evangelize there before hopping on a boat and going home back to Antioch. Now, if you look down here, it says Acts 15 in the little brown box in the, the lower right. It's pointing to this dotted purple line. Okay, Paul's first missionary journey and second missionary journeys are separated by this chapter 15 in the book of Acts. What was going on there was there were some false teachers that came from Jerusalem up to Antioch, and they began to say the same thing. They began to tell the people there, in order for you to be saved, you need to get circumcised. You need to be living like a Jew, even though you now are in Christ. And Paul was, we're told that there was a sharp contention between those two men and the men there at Antioch when these guys came up and tried to peddle this false doctrine. So what Paul and Barnabas, along with some others, decide to do is they say, look, we're going to settle this matter once and for all. We're going to travel down to Jerusalem. We're going to go to the apostles themselves, these guys that walked with Jesus and the elders at the church in Jerusalem, and we're going to get their take on what's going on here to find out what is the disposition of God towards the Gentiles. Now, the apostles there, they write a letter to send back with Paul and Barnabas. They send some guys back with them, Silas and another guy. And and in this letter, it says, no, the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. However, and what they do there, and, and it, it, it kind of, it's, it's just bad doctrine. When people try to make a big deal out of the other things that they said about the Gentiles, because they gave them some some essentially recommendations about what not to eat and don't, you know, don't go after things with blood and strangulation, all this stuff. The whole point in that was they said, look, don't do things that are going to be a stumbling block for your Jewish brothers and sisters. You're under grace. You have total freedom. But here, this is what we recommend. So they write this letter. They send it back with Paul and Barnabas. They get back to Antioch with this letter. They present it to the church there. And then it's on Paul's heart. We need to take this letter back to the churches we've already planted. So he says, come on, Barnabas, let's head out. We're going to go on. Let's take a, this, his second missionary journey. And so what happens there is Barnabas says, well, that, that's great. Let's go. Hey, by the way, I want John Mark to go with us. <laughs> That did not go well with Paul at all. Uh, we're told that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension over that. And I, I, I just picture Paul saying, not now, not ever. The guy bailed out on us. He hamstrung us. We had to, you know, he was there to help and we didn't have any help. And yet whatever the conversation was, but Paul said adamantly, no, he's not going with us. It was so sharp that Paul and Barnabas split at this point. Barnabas now went back to the island uh, of 
uh, Cyprus, and he took John Mark with him. And in the meantime, Silas, who had come from Jerusalem with the letter, he was part of the, the contingent that came out of Jerusalem. He says, look, I'm not going to go back to Jerusalem. Would you like for me to go with you, Paul? And so Paul and Silas now team up and they head out. Their intention was to go and to take this letter to the churches they had already planted. That was what was on their agenda. So they head out, as you see here in the second slide, they head out from Antioch. They go through Tarsus, which is Paul's hometown. And they go through Derby, Lystra, and Iconium. Now in Lystra, they pick up a guy by the name of Timothy. Young guy, uh, mother was a Jewish believer, uh, solid, educated in the scriptures, well, rep- well, re- good reputation. And so they picked Timothy up along the way. So now it's three men as of the time that they go through Lystra. And then they head on through Iconium and then on through Antioch and Pisidia. Again, to take this letter to say, look, this is what the elders, this is what the apostles in Jerusalem say. You don't, as Gentiles, now see, they're in a Gentile region here. Yeah, there are Jews there. But as Gentiles, as Christians, circumcision is off the table. You don't have to do it. You don't have to do it if you're Jewish. You don't have to do it if you're a Gentile. It's just not part of what is being required. Now, a lot of Jews went ahead and got circumcised. Paul had Timothy circumcised because he wanted him to be a witness to the people that they were coming into contact with. However, it was never mandatory. So that was the intention there. So at that point, having fulfilled what their initial agenda was, Paul and Silas and Timothy decided, well, you know, let's keep going. I know. Let's go down into Asia and evangelize there. So they started to make their plans to do that. And we don't know how. We don't know if God, you know, like put a brick wall in front of them. We don't know if the Lord allowed opposition to come. We don't know if it was just a divine revelation. But the Holy Spirit said, no, you can't go to Asia. I don't want you there. So Paul, he says, okay, well, I guess we're not going to Asia. And so they say, I know, let's go north and let's go into Bithynia. Once again, the Holy Spirit said, no, I don't want you going to Bithynia. So God is definitely in this and he is directing Paul and these guys. They're essentially kind of wandering around trying to figure out, okay, God, where do you want us to go? You say no to Asia. You say no to Bithynia. And, and, you know, I picture him going, well, let's just go to the coast. <laughs> but we don't know what drove them to Troas at this point because God was closing doors along the way. Again, this is not planned. I do not believe in any sense that they had actually prescribed to go to Troas and then, then we're going to go do all this other stuff. I believe that they got there. Now, when they get there, the three men, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they run across another guy by the name of Luke. That's where Luke joins them. The narrative changes from we or from uh, from them to we, to us. And so we know that Luke joins them at Troas. Paul in the middle of the night has a dream. And it's like this guy in Macedonia standing there saying, come and help us. And we don't know again what the tone was, but he has this really, we would look at it as kind of a weird dream. But it was the Lord. He gets up the next day or in the middle of the night or whatever. He says, guys, I had this dream. And, and this, this man in Macedonia, he's, he's calling for us to come. And, and, and they get together and say, well, you know, it looks like maybe that's God's will. And so let's go. Let's jump on a boat. So they head off to Philippi across the Aegean Sea there. Uh, and that's where they begin now to begin to evangelize the continent of Europe. 
It's the first time that the gospel goes to Europe when they go to Philippi. Now, things don't go great in Philippi. They, they start out really well. They meet a woman by the name of Lydia down by the river, and there were a bunch of people congregating there. They bring the gospel to them. Lydia and her household get saved, and, and people start to come. The church is planted, and it begins to grow, and things are going well. And so there they are in Philippi, and this slave girl who had a demonic spirit a spirit of divination, we're told. She starts following Paul around everywhere he goes, and she's prophesying these demonic sayings to him. And, and at one point, Paul, he just gets fed up. He gets, he's tired of this girl following him around, and he knows that, that she's got a, a demonic spirit. He turns around, and he rebukes the spirit, casts the spirit out of her. Well, she was, because she had the spirit of divination, she was actually fortune-telling for her bosses. Uh, her masters, she was being employed by them, charging a fee to tell people what was taking place. Kind of ruined their gig. They, at that point, they're saying, well, you know, we just lost our prophet. I don't think we like this guy, Paul. So they have Paul and Silas dragged before the magistrates of the city. And there they beat them with rods, is what we're told. And I would love to go into it. We talked about it in the book of Acts where the lictors come with the fascia rods, the bundles of, they had these bundles of rods, and they beat these guys senseless. Again, we look at it, we hear they were beaten with rods, we kind of think, oh, well, too bad, so sad. No, they were beaten within an inch of their lives. They would have been messed up, covered with sores, covered with welts. They get thrown into the, we're told, the inner prison, into the dungeon there in Philippi, and about that point, an earthquake comes, earthquake comes along, and, and all the doors open, and Paul says, hey, everybody, stick around, stay put. You were not going anywhere. Through that, the Philippian jailer gets saved, and about that time, the magistrates in the city realize, what do you mean these guys are Roman citizens? <laughs> we essentially, uh, and, and it was absolutely against the law to, 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 to deal with a Roman citizen without due process. And for them, if you did that, for them to have beaten them and thrown them in jail without a trial or without any of the due process that Roman law prescribed, the sentence for the magistrates in the city was death. So Paul has them over a barrel here, and they come they come over the jail, and they, they, they essentially, uh, again, paraphrasing, they say, pretty please, Paul, would you please, like, leave? <laughs> and at that point, Paul, he kind of gets a little obstinate. He goes, no, I'm not going anywhere until we work some things out. So he works it out with them. And I believe that he stuck around, not because he wanted to push his weight around, but because he wanted to ensure that the church going forward wouldn't be subjected to this again. And so after that, knowing that he had the left foot of fellowship, he and... Silas and Timothy head west to go to Thessalonica. They leave Luke in Philippi, and now the three men themselves head off. And that's where we get to Philippi in this third slide here as they're traveling across, or that's where we get to Thessalonica. Now, when they get to Thessalonica, <laughs> again, you got to keep in mind, this is so new to these guys. There is nothing in God's word that tells us that they had been here before they hadn't planned to be here. They're simply going with the doors that God is opening and the doors that God is closing along the way. They're essentially compelled forward by the power of the Holy Spirit and nothing else. 
They're simply going on faith, trusting that God is in this, even though none of this was planned. They get to Thessalonica, and Thessalonica, huge city, small contingent of Jews there. It was a a Gentile city, 200,000 people, and and a small uh, contingent of Jews. But Paul, by this time, he had established a pattern of what he did. Remember, he was a religious leader back in Israel. He knew the ropes as far as the synagogue went. He knew the questions to ask. He knew the, the procedures and the protocols. And so what he would do when he got to a city is he would go to the synagogue first, to the Jews first, and then to the Greeks. And so he goes to the synagogue, small synagogue, no doubt, but there were a large amount of, of Greeks that were there seeking God, and, and we don't know to what degree, but it says that not, a, not many of the Jews came to Christ through that effort, but a great multitude of Greeks did, and not a small amount of the leading women were told. that. So there's this huge outpouring of the Holy Spirit there in Thessalonica. Well, the Jews didn't like that because all of a sudden they kind of stepped on their toes. I mean, they've got this thing going and then all these people are jumping off and going with Paul and following them and they became envious and jealous. So they ran the guys up on charges. They had the city officials come after them. They go to the house of Jason. They can't find Paul. Paul and Silas and Timothy there at this point. Uh, and Paul is a hunted man. So Paul decides, you know, I need to leave after only three weeks. He was there three Sabbaths, we're told. This is an infant, totally uh, just just birthed church. He hadn't had time to pour into them. So it says that they go to Berea at that point. Now, Berea is only a few miles away from Thessalonica. And I believe that what they were doing, what Paul's strategy was here, was I'll go to Berea while things cool off. And then I'll be able, as soon as things settle down, I'll be able to get back to Thessalonica and be able to continue the work there. He tells us in his first letter to the Thessalonians, I tried several times to get back to you, but Satan hindered me. So rather than his plan, again, unscripted, unplanned, he's thinking, well, I'm going to go back. I'll be a thing, let things blow over. You know, right now we're in the, in the news cycle. Pretty soon that'll stop and I'll be able to go back and things will be fine. Well, it doesn't go that way. (laughs) I said news cycle. Some of you laughed. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Don't you love it when you're in the news cycle? At any rate, it doesn't go that way. The Jews in Thessalonica find out that Paul is there. And so they come after him there and they stir up trouble. And they say, no, 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 you can't be here either. And so Paul, essentially, he has to leave. Now he's going to head down. He's going to go by night to Athens, down to the south. But he gives instruction to Timothy Look, go back and strengthen and nurture the church at Thessalonica because I can't go. They know me. They know what I'm about, but they don't evidently know you. Timothy doesn't show up in a lot of the narrative up until this point. So he sends Timothy back. He and Silas go back. Paul travels to Athens, then over to Corinth. And as we see in this fourth slide, about a year later, Timothy and Silas joined Paul there at Corinth. And there, Timothy gives him a comprehensive report of what's going on with this church. He says, man, the church is exploding, Paul. I mean, they are reaching out. They are reaching out throughout the entire region of Macedonia. They are doing a fantastic work. However, there's a lot going on here that you need to know about. And so, What that does is it inspires Paul to write this first letter to the Thessalonians. Now, 
the two letters that he writes, they are known as Paul's eschatological letters. Uh, that's a fancy word for prophetic. These are his prophetic epistles. They're also his earliest epistles. They're the earliest writings that he did. Now, in, in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, we saw he comes at them with a pastoral heart. He cares for them, and, and that is combined with practical guidance uh, as he affirms their faith in the midst of strong persecution. Because after he had left, the persecution didn't stop. It actually got worse, and it mounted. The people were coming under heavy fire. They were being opposed by the Jews. They were being opposed by the Romans. And they were being opposed by the pagan, idolatrous culture that they'd been delivered from. These guys didn't have a lot of friends. But they were standing up for Christ. They were moving forward with the gospel. And they were standing firm in the midst of heavy, heavy persecution. So he also addresses in his first letter some eschatological concerns. And he gives insights uh, into the fate of their deceased believers, the ones that had died. He says, look, don't worry about them. They're good. Uh, So he gives them insights there. He also outlines the rapture of the church as well as the coming day of the Lord, where the Lord's, where God's judgment will be poured out on an unbelieving, Christ-rejecting world. He's also practical uh, as he urges the Thessalonians to excel in love, to work diligently, and to live peaceably, to live lives that are set apart. Don't get drawn back into that culture that God delivered you from. So, The epistle concludes with an exhortation to prayer and walking in spiritual integrity. So as we previously discussed, a short time after Paul sent his first letter to the Thessalonians, off to Thessalonica, word came to him, we don't know how, whether it was through writing or through a courier or what, uh, word came to him regarding some problems in the Thessalonian church that needed to be addressed. Number one, first of all, persecution was on the increase. The people were coming under heavier and heavier persecution. Also, false teachers were spreading dangerous heresies in the church. That needed to be addressed. Also, some in the church had disengaged from the culture uh, to the point that they were no longer productive and and they had become a weight on the other people in the church there. So as we look at this and uh, as we shift gears here a little bit, I want to talk about one of the things that I learned uh, to do back in my Bible school days is to do what I call a relaxed reading of the epistles of the Bible in one setting. What do you mean by that? Well, normally when I approach a passage of scripture, I love, as you guys know, I love to do deep dives. I love to get in there and take it apart. And we're going to do that with verse 11. We're going to spend a bunch of time in the balance of our time this morning just taking apart verse 11 because it is rich. There is so much there to unpack. However, you've got to understand, these are letters. It is a letter written by someone for someone. And when you sit down with the attitude of, I'm just going to read this as a letter as though I were the one getting it, there's great value in that. Sometimes the best interpretations are born of being able to simply sit down and say, What's the writer's mood? What's his attitude? What are the points he's making? What are the questions he's asking? What are the exhortations that are contained? What is it that he's trying to say to the church? God, what are you trying to say to me through it? So uh, understanding the broader context of what's being said is really important. So with that in mind, I'm going to go back to verse 3. I'm not going to go through the rest of it. I mean, we're going to go back 
Essentially, verse 3 is the beginning of the content of the letter. He has an opening salutation, and we looked at that in our first study. Uh, But we're going to go back to verse 3 and read straight through verse 10 before we get into the therefore that I talked about in verse 11 as we look at verses 11 and 12 in the rest of our time this morning. So launching right in, in verse 3, he says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting... Because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation, that's trouble, those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. A mouthful, but what profound comfort and assurance. These people were going through it. Man, they were getting drugged through the mud daily. And what profound comfort assurance there would be for the weary Thessalonians in Paul's words. So all of that brings us to Paul's prayer in verses 11 and 12. In verse 11, we read, Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the ultimate purpose of Paul and his companions' prayer in the, uh, here is the glory of God. You've got to understand that. Specifically, it was God's glory that it would be manifested in and through the Thessalonians. Now, I want to give you a brief description. This is what God's glory, I mean, very important that we understand when he's talking about God's glory, that we understand what he's referring to. Uh, And just I'll read a description here. It says, God's glory is the magnificence, worth, loveliness, and grandeur of his many perfections. God communicates his glory through his creation, image bearers, that's you and I, providence, and redemptive acts. God's people respond by glorifying him. God receives glory and, through uniting his people to Christ, shares his glory with them. Isn't that good? So it's that his glory would be manifested, that his glory would be seen in the lives of the the people at the church in Thessalonica. And he talks about it here in reference to their present troubles, as we see in verse 12, and also as they anticipate the coming of Christ, as we see in verse 10. So when this happens, those who manifest the glory of God radiate his glory themselves all through the Holy Spirit's dwelling within. So what he's, I, I, very often I look at the glory of God I, and to, to summarize, I will talk about it being light. 
Jesus is the light of the world. We look at the glory of God back in the tabernacle where it was this radiant light that would be hovering above the mercy seat or above the tabernacle itself. That it's very hard to describe, but this is the best definition I've found for the glory of God. He's saying, look, God's glory is the goal. We want him to be glorified in him, but also in you. I'll talk about that as we go. So looking at this, he says that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. In the Bible, remember that a name stands for more than the person who's named. It's also about character. It's about conduct. It's about reputation. It's about everything about that person. Uh, names are indicative of character. So in this prayer, Paul's asking that God would glorify Jesus Christ in the Thessalonian saints, that his name would be manifest in their lives. All of this is a function of the grace of God. And that grace is personified in verse 12 when he says, uh, the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ, that that's the means through which he does this. It's not some mandate, it's by his grace. By the way, he puts God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as equals in this statement. <clears throat> so let's look at verse 11 together. He says, he begins, he says, therefore we also pray always for you. So Paul sincerely loved the believers at the church in Thessalonica. I mean, he genuinely cared deeply for them. He knew that they were being persecuted and, and that was a cause for great concern with him. He cared for them. He wanted to know how they were doing. And when word came back that in some ways they were doing great, in some ways they were doing horribly, he was really concerned because he knew. And folks, we need to know that for followers of Christ, there will be difficulties. Many in our world today are physically, brutally persecuted. Uh, not as much in our society, in our culture. For most of us, not all. I'm aware of some who face greater persecution, uh, even some in our body. Uh, mostly it's verbal. Uh, people sometimes come against us. as they, be, they come to understand that we believe the Bible or that we stand for the things of the kingdom of God, which stands in, as a polar <laughs> opposite to the things of this world. Uh, people come to get against us as they, they learn that we trust in Christ as our Lord, as our Savior. However, for the Thessalonians, it wasn't just verbal. They were being literally, severely persecuted. Um, Paul reminded them uh, in that, that Jesus knew what was going on in their lives, that Jesus knew what they were going through. He's telling them that Jesus would return, establish his kingdom on earth, which was the blessed hope for them, and it's the blessed hope of all true believers. Uh, but at the same time, when he does return, the kingdom of man, the reign of evil, uh, will come to an end. He's saying, you can bank on that. At that point, Jesus will establish a kingdom of righteousness and peace. Uh, folks, that's our blessed hope. That's what we hang on to. When things are hard, when our life is pressed in, that's our hope. I don't know about you, but I've gone through periods of breaking, periods of great trial, periods of uh, not as much persecution, but, but huge challenges in my life. 
And sometimes the best I could do, and I realized the greatest I could do, is to hold on to the fact that it will not always be this way. We've got to understand that's uh, it's just an absolute truth. And remember, at some point, whenever he wraps us up, we're going to be done with the, we're we're going to be with with the Lord, and, and we're going to these bodies, the, these ones, <laughs> this body that's wearing out, this body that gravity is taking a greater toll on all the time. Uh, it'll be gone. We'll have our glorified bodies. Um, awesome to think about. Now, remember last week we read the Lord's going to come back with his mighty angels. Uh, there Paul was, he was teaching, saying that he's coming back and he's going to judge the world. Remember, he talks about the angels will be the ones that he uses to round up unbelievers and, and to bring them to the place of judgment. He says, but for you, there will be rest. For you, because in that day, you'll finally be delivered from all the trials and the difficulties of life. You'll have rest. He says, you'll have rest with us. I love that. So with that in mind, Paul's saying that the Lord, he is going to wrap this all up. And he needed them to see, again, he needed them to see. It might be tough now, but glory is coming. That It might be tough now, but it won't always be like this. God will come back and he will repay. He will recompense sin. That's why his words, hard as they are, talking about judgment, talking about hell, all of that. They're a great encouragement to these people because he's saying, look, you've got to hold on to the fact that God's not asleep at the wheel here. He will take care of all of this when he wraps it up at the end of the age. And folks, he will take care of all of this when he wraps it all up at the end of the age. That applies to us every much as it did today as it did to them in their day. Verse 11 going on, he says that our God would count you worthy of this calling. What calling? You're suffering. They're going through it. They're going through hell on earth. And he calls that a calling to be worthy of. <clears throat> I want to I want to steer us around a distraction here. Notice the word this in verse 11 when he talks about that you be worthy of this calling. Uh, some translations render that his calling. Some render it your calling. Uh, folks, don't get hung up on that. Thomas and I had this fun banter going over text last week. Uh, it, it, and yeah, I, I got I said, you're baiting me. Because he, he, he was trying to get me. Anyway, the point is, the, this word, it, the reason why it's in italics, and I've got an italics on the slide, the reason it's in italics is it doesn't exist. It's not in the original text. We don't know what the, what the pronoun is, whether it's his calling, your calling, their calling. We don't know. But what we do know is it's about the glory of God. It's about the great call that's on our lives. Uh, and I think that when people, uh, when they get hung up on that particular word, some do because they have an agenda. They want to, they want to get into this, uh, you know, different doctrinal positions and all of that. And I just look at that and I just think, you know what? I am not going to get distracted by that because it's not the point that Paul is making here. You have to try to make it a point to make a point with it. And I'm not gonna. They miss the point altogether. And that's because this is about the glory of God. Look at, and if it, again, look at glory as the light of God. Look at glory as, as that what that, that God gives Christians this high calling 
which is to see him glorified in the lives of his people, to see him glorified in our lives, to see his character show up in our lives. That glorifies him. That's how we wear his glory. Not our glory. He cautions, I will not share my glory with another. He's talking about in a carnal sense. It's not about me. It's not about my agenda. It's not about how good I am or how well I can do this or that. It's about him. It's about yielding to the work of his spirit in my life, in my heart, and seeing that he is glorified in and through my life. So he prays that the Thessalonians would be counted worthy of this calling. In the rest of verse 11 and verse 12, he demonstrates ways to fulfill that calling. Remember, these people are suffering. We talked in a previous study about persecution of believers beginning at Thessalonica. Talked about crucifixion. Talked about them being burned alive. Things, horrible ways that they were executing believers for their faith. Some of them were no doubt enduring terrible, terrible persecution. Now I want to note something interesting here. And this is interesting. It's conspicuous in that it's absent. It's not there. As we look at Paul's prayer here, he didn't pray for their suffering to cease. He didn't pray for their suffering to end. As far as what's written here, he was praying for their spiritual growth, praying for their calling, and they walk worthy of it. And essentially, we, we live worthy of his call when the name of our Lord Jesus is glorified in us. Again, what it means is the name more than just a word, but the representation of his character. And folks, one of the things that we say around here, we have on our website, we have on some of our printed literature, is learning to think like Jesus. That's not just a fun tagline. I mean, yeah, I, I spent many, many, many years in the advertising business, and, and you'd have the name of an organization, and you have a tagline. That's kind of how you want them to be known. It's way more than that, because what we're talking about here, responding to the high call on each of our lives, is learning to think like Jesus. The learning to behave like he does. Have any of us arrived in that area? I think not. But that doesn't mean that's not our goal. That doesn't mean that we don't want to represent the Lord well in our lives. We live worthy of his call when we're living to glorify him. When he alone is our source of glory. And, and, and folks, and I say this more to guys, but I think all of us can fall into this. Men tend to identify themselves by what they do. I know I do. You know, I, I would look at my vocation or I look at my vocation now, even though I'm in vocational ministry, and I can identify myself by what I do. Is the glory of God in my life taking precedence over that? Who we are in Jesus is more important than who we are in anything else. And it's something for us to take to heart is who I am in Jesus at the top of the list in my heart, in my life. Paul's praying here that they would remain steadfast in their trust, in their faith, in their commitment to the Lord as they're going through all of these difficulties. He's also praying that these people who are in such horrible condition for suffering and pain and sorrow, that they would remain committed to the Lord, be counted worthy as they truly belong to him. And folks, I talked last week about the parable where Jesus says, yeah, that guy continues for a while. But when trouble, persecution comes, 
He's out of there. Uh, Let that not be named among any of us. Going on in verse 11, he says, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. That's an interesting thing. We don't often talk about the goodness of God as being an attribute to who he is. But you want to know something? It is. We live worthy of his call when we fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness, living lives that are touched by his goodness, and displaying his goodness in our interactions with others. How does that look practically? In context here, Paul's praying that they would emerge from their suffering full of goodness. Now, remember, as they're being persecuted, remember that Paul, he had already complimented them for this. He said, remember we looked at, he says, your faith is growing and your love is abounding. Those are good things. That was goodness, the goodness of God being reflected in them and through their lives in their reputation as a church, in their reputation as believers. So when he says to fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness, they were doing it. He says, you're doing it well and it's so well that I'm bragging on you to other churches. You're a model church. Even in the midst of all that's going on, the the persecution that you're going through, you're hanging in there. A good thing. So he adds one more thing here in verse 11. And he says, and the work of faith with power. Now, as we look at this, I'm reminded of what James was talking about in his epistle uh, it, it, there he talks about, he says, look, you show me your faith and I'll show you my works. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about the outworking of faith. Uh, he says, you say you have faith? Let me see it in action, how you're conducting your life. Uh, again, not faith for salvation, but if you're professing to be a true believer, have faith in God, it ought to be manifesting in your life. That's the natural supernatural outflow in your life. It should be lining up with a life that's fulfilling the high calling of God, honoring him, and by his power, bearing fruit for his kingdom. Are we fulfilling that calling of God in our lives? As Paul finishes his prayer, he tells them about the results of living in that place in verse 12. He says in verse 12, I'll read it again, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So in doing so, their lives are transformed as Christ is glorified in them, in him. So Paul prayed for their faith to be strengthened by the hard things, the hard times that they were going through. He prayed that as they walked in the light, in the glory of Christ, that his light would be seen in them. That's what John the Apostle says when he says, walk in the light as he is in the light. He's talking about the glory of God. He's not talking about you know, a, a physical light bulb. He's talking about the glory of God being manifest in us so that when people look at my life, that they see the glory of God being reflected, radiated outward because I am spending time in his presence. Think about it in 2 Corinthians. Paul talks about that. talks about Moses coming down off Mount Sinai. His face was glowing because he had been in the glory of God. He had been caught up and he had been in the presence of God. The problem there is he said Moses' light was diminishing. They had to put a towel over his face. He says, but not so with you. He says that you are, we are being transformed from glory to glory, that we are increasing in glory as we go along. Wonderful illustration of what he's talking about here. And thinking about this, 
Is it logical to commit your life to the Lord and to think that you're never going to be stretched? Is it logical to think that there will never be trials? Folks, I'm I'm convinced that in many ways, uh, <laughs> being a believer is not for the faint of heart. I believe that that God allows things in our lives that, yeah, it, it, and and the the these people in Thessalonica would they be under such heavy persecution if they just compromised with the way of the world? No, they were going through more. Because of their testimony of Christ, they're going through more because of their witness. They're going through more because of their dedication and their commitment to the high call of God in their lives, which was to go through that for his glory. Often that's the case with us. Because, you know, it's easy to say, I love Jesus when life is wonderful, isn't it? Well, it's good to be a Christian, right? But what do we do when the trials come? What do we do when that stretching happens? What do we do when we don't have answers to the questions in our lives? And what do we do when it just hurts all the time? Now, I was at a men's retreat one time, and, and um, one of the guys was teaching. And, and, and I don't know if you ladies or men, if you've been to a retreat, uh, often we come back from those, and we're just we're just charged up, and, and we're refreshed, and and it's a good thing. I mean. You can look at that as a mountaintop experience. And I've had, I've been blessed with some great mountaintop experiences. This one retreat I was at, the guy got up to teach and he said, you know what? The mountaintops are great, but the fruit grows in the valley. And I absolutely agree with that statement. The fruit grows when we're down there in the trenches, doesn't it? The fruit grows when our life is being pressed. The fruit grows when we have no other choice but to cry out to God. That's when our lives become fruitful. When, when I'll tell you what, church history is completely saturated with stories and accounts of when God's people get tough, it's when things get tough around them and they toughen up. And when God's church becomes effective, it's when there's no longer, it's no longer just Sunday school flannel graphs. It's, this is hard stuff, and we are faced with hard decisions, and we have got a tough road. I'm not saying I wish that on anyone, but I'll tell you what, the church in the West has become soft. I look at, I was talking to somebody, uh, first service, before first service, I was talking about Africa, going to Africa and seeing how most of the world lives and seeing how their faith really, really tends to mean something when there are great challenges. Sharing about when Stacy and I went to Thailand, we were in a ministry and the mission was at the northern border between Thailand and Myanmar. And we were just over the border in Thailand because Myanmar, Burma is a military dictatorship and, and we couldn't go in there. They smuggled me in to preach at a Burmese church one day, which was weird, a different story. But we had to bring these pastors and Bible college teachers out of Burma, Myanmar into Thailand so that we could run the school and equip them. And for these guys, I've mentioned it before, they would forfeit a month's worth of food just to come. It cost them something. They might walk for a week to get to the bus stop that they could get on the bus and come. It it cost them a lot. And again, I'm not saying that to put a guilt trip on us. We live in the culture we live in and we, we, and we, we do what we can to put God first in our lives. I'm just saying that, folks, it could get tough out there. It could get tougher. I'll tell you what, evil is unmasked in our world. 
There are things going on that, I mean, we could wake up tomorrow and have a whole different landscape out there. But I'll guarantee you this, the church will toughen up because that's what we do. That is free, by the way. That is nowhere in my notes. But it's during those times that we begin to discover, do I really trust the Lord here? Uh, Even if I don't understand why the things that are happening are coming upon me, uh, is my faith really in him? And I want to encourage you with something. I do not want this to be a message where you come out of here feeling condemned, like, yeah, yeah, well, I just guess I'm not that all committed and all that. But if those kind of questions, as you're going through challenges and trials, if those are the kind of questions that are on your mind as you face these difficult trials, you're on the right track. That's the right response. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite uh, guys, uh, he, he said, uh, when he said, dead men don't wrestle. And, and I love that. Because if you're wrestling about these things, <laughs> the fact that you're wrestling with these things is evidence of the new birth in your life. Because dead men don't wrestle. What you're experiencing, folks, is, is that's, a, that's a divine longing. I long for the day. I long for the day when I'm with Christ. I long for the day where I'm not tempted all the time. I long for the day where I'm not having a repent of the, and you know, I was reading something this week said, you know, as you grow, as you mature in Christ, you sin less and you repent more. And I thought, well, yeah, I think I agree with that <laughs> because we're more sensitive to those things that are always tugging at us. We're most sensitive, more sensitive to this flesh that's always dragging at us. We're most more sensitive to the things of God and, and to that ideal, that tension that lies between the way we are and the way we want to be. Dead men don't wrestle. Another thing about this, please don't take the trials that you're going through as God is somehow, his hand is against you. That's something that it it breaks my heart when I see it. When people assume that God is punishing them because they're going through tough times. He may be chastising, that's true. He chastens those whom he loves. But by and large, if that's what the devil, that's what unbelievers around you will try to tell you. But the fact of it is that there's such hardship in your life is that God wants you to grow. God will allow that thing to grow you. He will allow that to not only grow you, but to cause you to flourish in the midst of difficulty. It's a token of God's approval of his work in your life. Serious stuff, sobering stuff. I love the good times. I love the joy of the Lord. I love fellowshipping with you guys. I, I do. I mean, I absolutely love it. And, and as we have fellowship, and I look at there's a difference between fellowship and friendship. I have friends, but I have people with whom I share fellowship. That's where we share that spiritual connection. And, and, and folks, I love that. And were it not for the fact that we're connected together, sometimes it would be hard to stand. We don't just want to be around each other. We need each other. We need each other because these are perilous times. They're dangerous times. They're times where the church is less popular all the time, where God's people, there is mounting persecution. And I believe, yeah, coming to a community near you. Yeah, sobering. So as we finish up here, I want to look at three different things. (laughs) You know me. Uh, Question. Better or bitter? Better or bitter? It's been said that trials, challenges, 
will make you either better or bitter. I want to make something clear too. God is never, there is not a place in God's word where he promises to keep us from difficulty. That's not part of what he, that's not who he is. And, and, you know, it's, it might be hard to swallow at times, but he's not there to keep us from difficulty. Paul doesn't pray for these people for the difficulty to be removed. He prays for them to be strengthened in the middle of it. Because what God does, however, promise is that he would walk through those difficulties with us. And that's a promise that you can bank on. That's a promise that you can hold on to. That's a promise that you can come running to your father in the midst of tough, troubling times and know that he's there. Trials will make us better. And we can see things from the perspective that Paul puts forward here in this passage. Now, we pray to be delivered from trials. You know, we pray to be uh, healed from sickness. and, And that's good. We're told to do that. However, perhaps an equally good prayer would be for God to reveal to us his purposes in that thing. Because we know that he's working through the challenges in our lives. I look at the fruit of God's spirit in Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, the nine items listed there. Those are not guaranteed to be mine only in happy times, only in good times. There are things that God will work in my heart in the midst of the difficulty. So very often I found that it's beneficial in my prayer life to, yes, and I ask him, Lord, take this thing away. Take this heaviness, take this challenge. You know, please work in this situation or work in that person that's coming against, whatever it is. And that's not a bad thing. There's also the flip side of that where we pray, Lord, reveal yourself to me in it. Reveal your will for me in it. Show me how I should respond in light of it. A good prayer. And leaning into a trial doesn't mean that it's fun. <laughs> that's, that's, that would be ridiculous. I'm not saying, I'm not talking about fun. It's likely not fun. But as we do, as we do lean into it, we can know God loves us. He's growing us. He's maturing us through whatever that thing is. He teaches us to look to him, to trust him for what he's doing through the difficulties that we're going through. As he does, we understand that it's likely that we are going to be better, hopefully not bitter, on the other side of it. Second thing, how bright is your light? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a little bit of, of, of uh, <laughs> license here I I resist spiritualizing passages and that's trying to make them say something they're not. Uh, So I I preface this with, I'm reminded of a passage. I'm not trying to connect these necessarily, but I think there's some cool imagery here that I want to drive home. As we look at the story of Gideon and the Midianites in Judges chapter 7, there's Gideon, started out with thousands of men, and the Lord kept saying, no, that's too many. (laughs) Tear him down. So he reduces it down. uh, Still too many, Gideon. (laughs) So he pairs it down again. No, no, still too many. He ends up with 300 men against the the army of the Midianites. We're told that they were like a swarm of locusts. Have you ever seen that? 
I mean, not firsthand, hopefully, <laughs> but I mean, that's a lot. It was a huge army. So he says, I want you to take these 300 guys, space yourself out in a circle and go in the middle of the night, space yourself out in a circle around the camp of the Midianite soldiers. And I want you to take, take a torch, but I want you to take a, a clay pitcher, an earthen vessel type of thing. And I want you to put it over your torch so they can't see your light until I give you the signal. Now I'm going to also give you a trumpet. And so when I give you the signal, like when I do it, you do it. And when that happens, we're all going to break the pitcher, our lights will shine, and we're going to blow our horns. They did that, and to use our vernacular, they freaked the Midianites out. They went nuts. And they got up, and they were so confused, they started fighting each other, killing each other. And it's like the, the, the Gideon's guys are just kind of kicking back, watching this whole thing. These guys totally wiped themselves out. Israel won a great victory there in Judges chapter 1, or chapter 7. I love that story. <laughs> and so uh, the, the way that they dealt with them, I think, is remarkable, especially, you know, they've got this light in these pots, and they break them, and then, you know, all of a sudden, you think about the Midianites, they look and they see, all they see is a ring of, of torches around the whole camp, and all these horns getting blown, it was like totally messed them up. Going from that to the imagery we see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm going to read chapter 4, verses 7 through 10 in 2 Corinthians and then talk about it. Paul says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. And get this, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. He is talking about here in 2 Corinthians what he is talking about there in 2 Thessalonians. He's talking about the glory of God the light of God being manifest in our lives. And folks, very often, his light, his glory is seen in my life through my broken vessel. It's in my brokenness that God often does his most powerful work. What Paul is saying here, again, here in, in, in 2 Corinthians, in 2 Thessalonians, it's that in the times of breaking, that his glory, his attributes, his character, his life, emerges in me. Wonderful parallels there. Are you going through a time of brokenness? Take courage. Understand God hasn't, he's not left you. He's not forsaken you. He loves you with an eternal love. He's there in the midst of that thing. And he's working his purposes in your life. Lastly, I'm going to lighten it up a little bit here. Third thing. Third question, how fat are you? <laughs> how fat are you? <laughs> Change the emphasis here. Now, before you get insulted, <laughs> it's not what you're thinking. It's an acronym that my buddy and I, we used to take groups of teenagers and their parents and all, 
we would take these big groups down to Mexico every year for a mission exposure trip. And we'd have like 50, sometimes 70 people in these groups. And on the first day, we would have this big meeting and we would get everybody together. And you want to talk about looks on people's faces, tell the group of 17-year-old girls, you need to get fat. <laughs> They're like, what are you talking about, Pastor John? You know, but truly the acronym is, what it stands for is to be flexible, adaptable, and teachable. And folks, that's a word for all of us. Paul didn't intend to go all the way to Thessalonica. He wanted to go visit some churches that he planted, and he had this letter that he thought would be really cool for them to see it. This is from the apostles, like the capital A apostles. And, you know, they're telling us, you don't have to live like a Jew. Okay, you know, let's go do that. Well, and then he goes and he's like, well, okay, we'll go to Asia. I guess we're not going to Asia. Okay, well, we'll go to Bithynia. Well, I guess we're not going to Bithynia. Well, let's go to the coast. So they go to the coast. Well, now God wants us to cross the sea and go over to Europe. Really? Really? He was flexible, adaptable, and teachable. Perhaps you're going through a course correction right now. Remember at the beginning, I said, you ever been, you know, going along and all of a sudden God does something, he changes your course. I was talking to someone before service, they were talking about, I ran into three people yesterday at McMinnville, they said, see you at church tomorrow, and I'm like, I guess I will. <laughs> so I thought, that's awesome, because God has ways of getting our attention. He has ways of, of reaching us in, in the most interesting ways. The point is, are you open to that? Or are you so rigid and inflexible that you're going, nope? going to do it my way, going to have it my direction. It's going to be what I've got laid out. And if you're a planner, I'm sorry, God is really good at upsetting your plans. He does mine. Got to be flexible. Life is full of challenges. We got to learn to flex, adapt to the things that come our way. It's also extremely important that we remain teachable. And folks, I don't ever, ever want to be at a place in my life where I think that somehow I have now arrived in whatever area it is. I, I want to be that sponge. I want to be the one that says, you know what? Never thought of it that way before. Lord, let's go down that road together. Let's explore that. What do you mean you want us to go in this area of ministry? I never thought about that. Well, guess what? That's, that looks like that's what you're doing. There are times where he stretches us. There are times where he corrects our course. Why? Because he wants to do what he's going to do in our lives. And very often we have our thing laid out. That's what Paul did. Had he insisted on going his way, I don't know what would have happened in his ministry. Uh, you know, like I said, we don't have the book of, of First Asians or, or First and Second Bithynians here. We have Philippians from his visits to Philippi. We have First and Second Thessalonians because he went there. Great fruit in his life by him simply flexing and adapting to God's program for his life instead of his own. So, how fat are you? <laughs> Ask that again. Now with a little understanding. So I don't get big eyes. And folks, I'll, I'll tell you, your answer to that question will have a direct impact on your ability to navigate this life of faith that we've been called to. Let's pray. Oh, Father, just uh, thank you, Lord, uh, for, it feels like an energetic run through these couple of verses here in Second Thessalonians, and yet, Lord, you're so good. Just pray, Father, for each of us here, each within the sound of my voice, perhaps watching online or catching this later in our archives or whatever. 
Lord, that you would have your way with us, that we wouldn't be so set in our ways that when you want to do something new or something different, that you would find hearts that are open and receptive, Lord, that are willing to step out in faith, to know, Father, that our lives are hidden in you and that you want to express your life in us. Lord, it's about your glory. It's about seeing you glorified in our lives. It's about seeing you as you are. And Lord, we pray that as you manifest your glory in us, that people would see us, that they'd know that we've been in the presence of our King, that they would know that we have lives that are conformed to the image of his Son. And and Lord, we pray that you would just work in us. I pray, Father, for each one here that you would find hearts that are yielded to the conforming work that you desire to do. And that as we leave here today, Lord, go out there this week, that we would be mindful of the things that you've shown us here through your word this morning. We give ourselves afresh to you, Father. We pray your will be done in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.